Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. So on today's episode, I'm going to fill you in a little bit with regard to where I've been, what's been going on with me, why there was such a big hiatus um, this past year in 2022. Um, And also, I'm going to talk a bit about an article that I read in The Guardian and that I very much agree with about the quote-unquote sad beige trend for children. Uh, So stick around. So yeah, um, just to give you guys a heads up, I am feeling okay. I'm not sick or anything, but I literally like scalded my, the roof of my mouth all the way back to my throat, which is horrible. Um, but I had been, I had made like a veggie pizza and I had all the vegetables on top and they were really hot. And when I put the piece in my mouth, um, it like, you know how sometimes when you put something really hot in your mouth and your body responds by not knowing what to do really. So you try to spit it out, but you try to swallow part of it as well. And you're kind of in this difficult situation because it's so hot. It kind of like paralyzes you in that moment. Um, so that's what happened to me basically. So I ended up like burning half of the roof of my mouth, like on the, the left side. Um, and then when I was swallowing the hot vegetables, I ended up like scalding my, um, tonsils and stuff as well. So I am a hot mess on the throat and mouth end. Uh, so please apologies and accept my apologies in advance for any sort of vocal weirdness on this call, um, or this, this podcast. Um, So yeah, so that's what happened on that front. Um, But with regard to where I've been. So 2022 was a hard year because I was, you know, like we were doing okay in terms of COVID. Um, I was still doing a lot of mutual aid work. I was giving out masks and things like that through social media, like mailing stuff and whatnot. And I actually ended up mailing like well over 12,000 masks, which is just wild to even think about. Um, mailed over 12,000 N95s to people in need, um, just from the, like from my living room, you know, from my house. So it can be done. You can do things individually that help a lot of people. And I encourage those of you who have the means and the time and the energy to really invest in projects like this. Um, if you can't do it yourself, then to donate or support others who are doing it local as well. Like if you know community organizations and things like that that are doing things on the ground with people, um, definitely support them. So shout out to all the folks doing mutual aid. But um, yeah, so in doing that, um, I felt somewhat like I was doing something with purpose. You know, I was being a mom, obviously. Um, I was still working on my dissertation somewhat, but my main, I feel like my main energies were geared towards really protecting people. Um, because I have a belief that like, regardless of your income level, you should be able to have the things that you need, the tools that you need to protect yourself in this pandemic, which is ongoing. Um, and that the government has basically like abandoned ship on for quite some time, right? Like 2022 was not, 2022 was not, uh, unique in that way, but it seems like things had gotten worse. Um, and so, um, my child was going to school. Uh, you know, she was two at the time. She's about to be three, but during all of 2022, you know, she's she's going to school. She's doing okay. Everything's fine. 
Um, and the school that she was going to, like, thankfully, they were still taking COVID seriously. All the teachers and the assistant teachers and the admin, everybody was masking. Kids were required to mask. Parents were required to mask on pickup and all this stuff. It was great. I loved it. Um, they required, you know, testing if a kid was, was showing symptoms and things like that. They were really doing what they needed to do. So um, I appreciate that. However, um, they hired a teacher who I guess didn't really think of COVID as a big deal. Um, and she was walking around with the kids without wearing her mask or at least she'd have it under her nose or under her chin when I would come and pick my daughter up. And so, you know, I sent the school a letter and I was just like, hey, can you please, or like an email, um, like, can you please make sure that everybody's masking at school? Like, this is the policy and it's really important because the kids are often indoors days when the weather's bad and like, you know, it could expose the kids to COVID potentially. And then you don't know what people are dealing with in terms of their households. They, their parents, their siblings, their grandparents and extended family may be immunocompromised in some way or have issues that make them high risk. Um, so it's really important to like continue to protect the kids um, and your workers from getting COVID. And basically they were like, that's nice. We'll do that. They didn't do anything. Uh, and then a week, week went by. I wrote, I noticed that when I picked up my daughter again, um, some of the assistant teachers were not masked and I said, like, can y'all please <laughs> do something? Cause you know, like it's, even though I'm a parent, like, and I'm, I'm sending my kid there, it makes things difficult. Like how am I going to, I can't enforce anything, right? Like I can't enforce policy. It's the school's job to enforce the policy. Um, and then literally, uh, the day of day after sending that email, um, I tested my daughter because I regularly test, I regularly was testing my daughter and ourselves just out of surveillance because I figured, you know, she's going to school, she's potentially being exposed and I just want to make sure that she's not, um, positive because if she's positive, I obviously need to keep her home. I don't want her to make other kids sick, et cetera, or the teacher sick. Um, so I was regularly testing her like every other day I would test my daughter and then um, I tested her one day and she was positive and it was like bright red positive, um, on the rapid test. And then my husband tested, he was positive. Uh, mine didn't pop positive for several days, but like I was in the house with them. Obviously I have a toddler, so I'm caring for my toddler, etc. I'm not going to just like not care for her, um, while she's sick. And I was wearing an N95, but you know, if you're in a house, you're breathing the air, even with all the air purifiers in the world, sometimes it's going to be really difficult to um, stave off an infection like that that's airborne. So I ended up getting COVID as well. Um, thankfully, all of us did really, really well during the acute phase. I would not have even known that my daughter was sick. Um, she had a runny nose and a sneeze here and there, but like nothing beyond that. She was herself. She had energy. She was, you know, hyped up doing all sorts of activities and stuff. She really just was... I mean, I never would have known, and I'm thankful that I tested her regularly because if I hadn't, like, we wouldn't have known to take the steps that we did to notify the school and things like that. Um, and then my husband and I, we did well, although we did have to get Paxlovid because of our own, um, you know, quote-unquote pre-existing conditions, right? We have health issues that we wanted to make sure, um, you know, in combination with COVID wouldn't make things exponentially worse and get scary. Um, and now you know, like since then, it's just been a wait to see kind of situation. Um, we're hoping that we do okay from here on out. And 
Um, we're still doing everything we can to protect ourselves from COVID and also to help other people protect themselves from COVID. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was frustrating and, and really gutting because I enjoyed, I really appreciated, um, the school and I enjoyed the programming that they were doing. And I thought they were doing a really good job keeping the kids safe. Um, and you know, thankfully my daughter had already gotten one of her Moderna shots, one of two. So I think that helped a lot as well in terms of outcome. Um, and then I had just been, I had recently gotten like a second booster. This was before the bivalent booster was available. Um, but I had recently gotten a second booster. So in that sense, you know, we were well vaccinated and protected at least for that on that front. Um, but also just like, I don't know. You just never know at this point because long COVID is real and people who are fine during what we call the acute infection stage, like the middle, when they, once they get sick, sick, um, they're okay. They do fine. They have a quote unquote mild case, just a little cough here, a little congestion there, whatever. Uh, but then, you know, people are dying of heart attacks a month out from COVID or having blood clots two months out from COVID, et cetera. So these things are scary and very real. And I take it seriously and continue to take it seriously. Um, and so, I decided at that point to pull my daughter from school, um, and I've been homeschooling her ever since then. So she's been at home since we got sick in middle of July. Um, once she got better, you know, we, 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 she went back for like one week once she recovered. And then, um, I pulled her out of school because I just said like, there's no point in continuing this, but we have like the rest of the month to that she can like go to school for a couple days and see her friends for the last time and whatever, and then be done. Um, and so basically like, again, it was one of those like life put on hold moments. Right. Um, because I, a lot of the plans that I had for what my PhD would look like, what my life would look like, what my career would look like. COVID just like kicked that in the teeth. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of think of different ways to use my skills and my, you know, what I'm working on academically, because right now universities are not safe environments. Many are not taking, I think all at this point, none of them are taking any uh, COVID precautions. And that means that a professor like me who has MS and other health issues um, would be at risk. And then also I just, even if I were completely healthy, I wouldn't feel comfortable working in an environment like that because it means that and, you know, once you get COVID, you are technically immunocompromised in a lot of ways. Your immune system may be messed up. Your organs may be messed up. And these are things that you can't see, but that when they run the tests and they do a full scan of your body and do all the diagnostic work, they start to see things emerge that, um, especially upon repeat infection, that could kill you or that could definitely make your life really difficult, um, especially in a country like the United States where very little care is given or attention is paid towards people with chronic illness and disability. Um, so it's not just a you problem, it's a societal and structural and institutional problem that makes it very difficult for people who have disabilities and chronic illness. So for me, I was like, you know, I don't really see myself as having any other choice than to homeschool my child. Um, it's difficult. It's really hard. I'm exhausted every day. Like I need breaks constantly. And I found myself in a position where I just did not have the energy or the free time to devote to the podcast. And I say that in like complete and utter sincerity, like it was very difficult, not only in terms of time, but also just emotionally. Right. And I think that last episode that we did with Brent from Rad Reads really, um, 
made me think about a lot of things in terms of like radicalism and ways that I'm applying my, my ideology and my political stance in life. And, you know, I started just continuing to put my nose to the ground and doing or nose to the grindstone, they say, right. And doing things for other people, but I wasn't really protecting myself in the sense of like my mental state or my emotional state. I was just working, 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 working and doing things and, you know, driving around, taking my daughter to school, taking her to this activity. taking the, And when I say activity, like outdoor stuff, masks, et cetera. But my point is that I was run ragged. And I think you know, that already made it difficult, but then to get COVID and have to switch gears and homeschool her made it even more difficult to have the free time to do interviews, to schedule interviews, to edit the interviews, to put out the social media stuff, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's where I've been. <laughs> I've been being a parent. I've been being an advocate. Um, I've been working in other ways, but I've just... I've just been too busy to get to this, and I made it a goal for myself for this year to reinvest um, in earnest in this project because it's important to me, and I understand that it's important to a lot of the listeners, um, and I recognize that it's something that I need to continue doing, even if I'm tired, even if I don't have energy, but I've made it a point to really make sure that I put out some sort of content. Um, so with all of that said, I think for today, I want to talk a little bit about um, parenting stuff. So this is going to be a comrade mommy episode. Uh, so for those of you who don't like the mommy stuff or who aren't interested in parenting stuff, feel free to check out of this. But it is something that you might be interested in because I talk a bit about, I'm going to talk a bit about consumerism, minimalism, and things like that. And uh the ideas uh, that are sort of what's considered socially acceptable in terms of child rearing that's very much rooted in capitalism. And uh, yeah, so it might interest you regardless, even if you're not a parent. But um, yeah, I want to talk today about an article that was written by Eva Wiseman in The Guardian. And the title of the article is um, called The Quote-Unquote Sad Beige Trend for Kids Goes Against All of My Wild Instincts. Um so it's an interesting article. I agree with most of the points that she makes, but basically she's talking about these this trend that's popped up in the past few years of like very minimalist, very clean, um, you know, no mess uh, kids playrooms, right? So first of all, the, there's a whole thing where like every kid has to have a playroom, right? Which already says a lot about what type of house you have, what type of income you have, whether or not you have someone to stay at home and watch your kid play in a room like that. Uh, you know, it raises all of these questions, right, in terms of class and, and economic background and access. But then also it talks a bit about these these, this trend and how it's still very much rooted in consumerism, despite it trying to present itself as like a minimalist trend or something that reduces uh, waste or um, consumption. Because basically what happens is, you know, you have these, like I said, of course, playrooms, right? Sometimes bedrooms, but usually it's the focus has been in, in terms of Instagram and Pinterest and things like that on the playroom specifically. Um, and you have like muted colors. So they don't have bright colors. There's not a lot of stuff that's shiny and making noises or lighting up. Um, and some of this is technically rooted in Montessori pedagogy, which at least the, the application of Montessori in the home, uh, which does emphasize using natural materials and um, things that are made out of like wood or metal or glass, um, things that are realistic for kids to play with that are 
literally items from real life. And then there's also philosophies or like pedagogies like Reggio Emilia, which emphasizes the natural world and things that are found objects in one's uh, community and things like that. So there's a lot of, again, an emphasis on the natural. Uh, You're talking about woods and grasses and flowers and things that are, again, like natural, right? Um, But unfortunately, this trend has gone to an extreme where parents are, you know, rejecting gifts from people if they have too many colors or like they're encouraging their kids to be, there's almost like a Victorian aspect of it of like quiet and calm and um, children are to be seen and not heard sort of situation happening in the background. The messaging there at least has that sort of sub message happening. Um, and I think it's interesting because we're entering a, a point where, you know, consumerism, particularly in the United States, is high, but being challenged by things like inflation. Um, So who has access to goods and who doesn't is becoming very stark. The division is becoming very stark. Um, And so it's fascinating to me to have this idea of like having a children's play, a child's playroom that basically has no joy or life in it, you know, Um, no color, no fun, but at the same time is rooted in buying things that are very expensive. So the shelves and the toys and everything is like handcrafted and, you know, bespoke and whatever. And even the clothing for kids, you know, everything is organic cotton and free of dyes and chemicals. But then also that seems to mean that it has to be boring in color. Um, And again, it reminds me very much of kind of the Victorian aesthetic, if you think about what was trend on trend for kids back then. Um, and even if you look at the pictures and whatnot, it's just sort of lifeless and sad. So I'm not saying, you know, my argument is that you don't have to have massive bright colors and lots of noise and things like that for something to be appealing for a child. In fact, in my household, like for example, because we're doing Montessori at home, we don't have a lot of stuff that makes a ton of noise or that lights up and whatnot. You know, we tend to have stuff that um, she can play with, but that's not going to be, um, you know, like just no- making noise, right? Like just kind of like a nuisance um, because it's mainly the main reason that's done is to be able to have the child use their own imagination, right? Um, and like Waldorf philosophy is similar in this sense where they also encourage kids to use their imagination so they don't use materials and things like that that are from like that are major commercial products or um, brands that show, you know, stuff from a kid's show or things that light up or make a bunch of noise. It's all kind of the same basis, which is touching and understanding the real world, touching and understanding, you know, what's natural and knowing the difference between um, materials. And then also understanding that like there's room there for the kids to use their own imaginations and to apply what they perceive in that moment to whatever they're doing. Right. So if my child looks at a block and she calls it cheese or I don't know, like a, a, a bowl or whatever she decides to use it in, in that moment, that's her using her imagination, um, which is encouraged as opposed to like giving her, uh, a thing that lights up and like announces itself as what it is. Um, and then your child is like, okay, that's what that is. And that's what they accept it as, you know? Um, so in that sense, good. But I think some of the points of the article were interesting in particular, because, you know, when she starts talking about the consumerist aspect of things, and um, how people have sort of co-opted the idea of what's natural to then mean something that's inaccessible, right? And that's something that we see beyond just the area for 
the area of like childcare and toys and things like that. When we think about nature in and of itself, right? Like who has access to the wild? Who has safety in the wild? Who can go out and go on hikes um, or go bird watching or whatever, go to the park and not be harassed because of their, because of like how they're perceived racially or ethnically um, or even in terms of gender, right? Like who can go and safely go to these spaces and not feel intimidated by others or harassed by others in the process? Um, who has the free time to go to these spaces? Who has the access in terms of membership? Because some of these, you know, hiking clubs and things like that, some of them have dues and whatnot. So there's all sorts of, there are layers to this, right? In terms of who it's for, but also the question becomes, or the question that in my mind that comes up a lot has to do with like colonialism, right? So you have these, this embrace of nature by people who are colonizers, but then what does that mean for people who, for whom the land was like, to whom the land originally belonged, right? Do indigenous people have access to their land anymore or have they are, you know, and the answer is yes, they have, they've been forced off their land and into spaces where they don't have as much, um, you know, they don't have as many natural resources. And the answer there is yes, right? The land that I walk on when I go with my child for a hike is ultimately land that indigenous people were removed from and forced away from and no longer have access to in many ways, at least the original inhabitants, right? And their descendants. Many people were forced out west and elsewhere um, and, you know, don't always have access to this land. So it's something to think about especially with regard to the embrace of the quote-unquote natural, but how that comes with a price tag. Um, she also talks a bit about uh, this fear of making a mess, right, and what that means socially as well. She says here, for example, that this, um, this beige aesthetic, right, is, quote, an aesthetic that crept in on the back of minimalism, a word which has long made me shudder. To me, the idea of a minimalist home does not suggest its intended serenity or peace, Instead, it suggests fear, fear both of stains and spillages, but also fear of getting it wrong, of stepping out of line and revealing the dark, grubby truth of one's inner desires, of people thinking you haven't tried hard enough. And I think that's really important because there's so much emphasis right now for, I mean, there's always been, but it's gotten worse over the years with social media and vlogging and things like that, where moms in particular are expected to be perfect, right? Dads can mess up and like, you know, if we're talking like heterosexual households or like traditional cisgender um, parenting setups, you know, moms have to be perfect and clean all the time and the kid has to be clean and like that playroom has to be perfect and this and that and like they always need to be put together. The house needs to be clean too. But then the dad can just like do whatever and like show up and glad he's alive, you know, but like that's pretty much the expectation for him that he has a pulse. And then the mom is expected to be this like robot, like perfect robot, basically. And so in a lot of ways, this aesthetic, as the author argues, and that I agree with, is it's sort of the aesthetic itself sort of reemphasizes or re, uh, reiterates the pressure on moms and parents and how that starts to sort of spill over into the aesthetic of the household, right? So everything has to be pristine and perfect, even though it's supposed to be natural. But like, it's a very curated form of quote unquote natural, right? It's a very curated form of minimalism that doesn't, that's not born of like the kid just not being interested in that much stuff and using its imagination and instead is born on like a very manufactured idea of what is supposed to be beautiful and serene and peaceful um, for the child and the family. 
Um, the other thing she says also that's great is um, going further. She says, quote, its exquisite emptiness is still seen as morally superior to a home filled with furniture, let alone mess. And while this sense of moral superiority is nothing new, increasingly it is bolstered by a more by more modern ideas about environmentalism. Stuff, quote unquote, such as raucous plastic toys or piles of felt tips, like markers in England, that's what they call them, becomes proof that their owner doesn't care about the devastation of the planet. And so that's really interesting to me, too, because it's taken environmentalism, which was technically, you know, uh, not necessarily a bougie concern back in the day. This idea of caring about the earth and things were like um, at like important aspects of Native and Indigenous cultures. And yet, and, and like lifestyle philosophies and politics... And that itself has become co-opted and turned into this upper class concern, right? This upper class thing that you do to raise money and be popular and be, you know, seen as quote unquote environmentalist TM, right? As opposed to something that you do because you actually care about the earth um, and that goes beyond just the individual everyday activities that you're doing, but that you understand is a larger structural problem that needs, you know, remedy at the government level, right? It's not just about personal consumer choices. And so I really appreciated that aspects of that aspect of the article too, and agree with it because it it feels like sometimes the pressure to do less uh, in terms of the the home aesthetic actually puts you or puts more pressure on you and makes you do more. So in order to keep a room like that clean, you have to work around the clock to put things away, to put stuff back on the shelf, to put things back in bins. Like your child also has to be sort of supervised in a way that emphasizes constant, um, basically constant control of their actions, right? At least for the moment that you're going to take a picture. Um, and again, like I said earlier, this goes back to this um, very social media heavy focus for moms in particular, again, moms, almost always moms, um, to have this perfect Instagrammable playroom or Instagrammable bedroom, um, Pinterest perfect playrooms, the three Ps, um, that really get away from a lot of the philosophies that they, they purport to represent. Um, because even though these things are environmentally, some in some cases are environmentally friendly, if they go beyond the facade and they're not just looking like they're environmentally friendly, but they are actually environmentally friendly, they are often very expensive. And what you have to do to get the money to afford these things usually is not going to be environmentally um, positive, right? Like if your dad or your, I should say your, your partner, if your partner is working for a major corporation and that's how you get the money to spend on these like carefully curated items that are environmentally conscious, then are you like, you know, doing one thing with the left hand and another with the right, right? Like it kind of <laughs> makes you ask some questions again about like, well, what, what is the, like, there's a disconnect there, right? And what good is the environmentally play, environmentally friendly playroom going to be if your partner is like working for a corporation that destroys the forest, you know? So there's a disconnect there. And I think it's important that we think about, you know, other areas that this happens too, not just with regard to the playrooms, but also beauty aesthetics and things like that, and beauty industry, um, personal fashion, etc. You know, you start to ask questions like, well, am I doing this because I actually care about the environment and that I, I want to make an impact? Or am I doing this because it's on trend and I'm not really paying attention to that in the rest, the other areas of my life, right? Um, and I think too, just on like a, 
on, on, like, how do, I'm, I'm curious about how children see it, right? I'm not a child, so I can't speak for them. Um, and I don't know if a kid would be able to, like, even articulate what they're thinking about in terms of the color scheme um, and how it impacts them. But it raises questions about, like, is a child more at peace if they're in a room that's a certain color? Or are they happier if they're in a, a play area that has minimal toys or minimal things to, to do in the traditional sense or minimal colors? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are some, there are some you know, child psychologists and people who research this that can weigh in. And I think actually some of the origins of it were rooted in that, particularly because apparently children up to a certain age, like can't process colors or at least babies, I should say not children, but babies. So like I know for babies that are really, really young, they say, they say to show them black and white contrast um, pictures and like simplified pictures, images, um, and that their brains can process that better because they don't have fully developed color or depth perception yet. Um, but I don't know about, you know, like, does a toddler need to have a colorless room? Does that matter? And to me, I have a sneaking suspicion that this this whole ordeal is like, or trend is something that took an aspect of child psychology. And I certainly see it in the way that it took, uh, uses Montessori and Waldorf pedagogy in application in the home um, and took it too far, right? Like, <laughs> because I definitely, for example, when a good example um, is uh, that I can speak to is about Montessori, right? So they often say for Montessori stuff, you know, like you want it to be natural. You want it to be made of natural materials that you can find in nature. Um, and you want the item to be durable. Um, when I say item, I mean like the toys or things that they're playing with. And it's worth noting too that Maria Montessori was practicing in a classroom setting, right? So she's not she's not emphasizing or saying anything necessarily about what you need to be doing at home. But because a lot of people are up like that are into Montessori in the school setting are also applying some of the principles at home, there's this overlap. But that's not an overlap necessarily that Maria Montessori had like put into word, right? Like there's not there's not like a how to do Montessori at home book by Maria Montessori because it wasn't an idea at the time. The idea was you do Montessori in the classroom. It was a classroom philosophy. And so uh, so the, my long story short here is like that being said, you see sometimes that there will be like little play toy cars that are made out of wood. Instead of having a toy car like a matchbox car that, you know, is – metal and then has rubber for the tires which is very much reflective of the, an actual car right it's just a miniature version of it instead of doing that and allowing kids to play with that they have these cars that are made out of wood and the 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 wheels are wooden and it just looks so silly like what are you doing you know like it, the natural materials thing is supposed to replicate to be like a microcosm of real life and I've never seen a wooden car with wooden wheels at least not on the street, you know, so like in an effort to kind of sanitize the child's experience um, and what they're accessing in terms of toys, they end up doing something that actually goes directly against what happens in real life. I know also there's like this really big aversion to plastics by some people in Montessori. Um, and the idea is like, 
I mean, at the time that Maria Montessori was practicing, which, you know, we're talking about like mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century, the stuff that she's working, there's not going to be that much plastic, right? Let's get real. Like if you're, if you're teaching a classroom in the 1930s or 40s, you're not going to have a ton of stuff even available that's made of plastic. Everything's going to be made of glass or wood or metal, you know, like, so if we're talking about things reflecting the real world, then in our current real world, a lot of stuff is made out of plastic. And a lot of things are plastic based, like in our everyday lives, plastic, silicones, etc. So why would we not also allow our children to play with things that are reflective of the world that they live in, you know? And I think if we were updating um, Montessori to reflect the current state of affairs as opposed to seeing it as like a bible or some some sort of inflexible inflexible pedagogy i think people would recognize that yeah plastic is okay um to play with and i also you know obviously again there's so many classed messages going on there because who can afford these wooden and metal and uh, you know uh glass objects okay anyone you could argue because you could get them from goodwill or ikea or something and that's true but when your child breaks them or colors on them or destroys them and then you have to buy new stuff that's not going to be as easily accessible for someone who may be on you know the lower end economically who would much easier go to the dollar store and buy something that's plastic that that could be used for the same purposes um, and put it in their house, right? So, like, this is the, it, it already sets up a class divide, which was absolutely not the intention of Maria Montessori when she started Montessori pedagogy. Like, it's like quite the opposite, actually. And so, in a lot of ways, much as I've argued in another um, podcast episode from last year or like the year before, I think, you know, this idea of like who has access to certain things is definitely. Um, it, it feels intentional to me. Um, and they're trying to, it's, it's kind of strange that they've taken a philosophy that was meant for poor children and children of workers um, and instead turned it into this like luxury thing. And so I think the article in, in kind of focusing on these, this color choice situation really lays out pretty clearly like how it, it creates a divide um, and how it creates the quote unquote good parent versus the bad parent. And that is deeply uh, connected to class stratification, <laughs> you know, because they say, okay, well, you're a, you're a bad parent if you let your kid play with plastic and you're a bad parent if you let your kid, you know, like um, color and make a mess. And then you start, you know, asking questions like, well, who has the time or the money um, to watch your kids every move? Who has nannies to take care of that for them instead of doing it themselves? Who has, you know, the money to replace all of these fancy objects when the child breaks them and who has the maid to clean up the objects you know what I mean like it's just it's just one thing after another um and it it very much mirrors as I said before kind of Victorian notions of child rearing and Victorian notions of good and evil and all of this stuff it's just going round and round again back to square one and it's unfortunate because it definitely stigmatizes certain forms of parenting that might actually allow the child to be freer and happier, you know? Um, and, and, and as long as for me, I'm kind of like, as long as they're having a good time and they're learning and they're doing it in a safe way, then I'm here, I'm here for it. You know what I mean? Like I, 
I don't understand. And I, I mean, again, I, I understand it on a structural level and like a big picture level, but I don't understand it on a personal level why moms would want to put themselves through more misery and more drama than they already have to deal with and just raising a child um, for the sake of having a pretty image to put on social media or to, for whatever reason of their, you know, personal uh, beliefs that they have to behave in a certain way or look a certain way while they're rearing their children. It just seems like added pressure that's unnecessary and unhealthy. Um, and again, also one that's very much gendered as, as well. You know, I, I talked about that a little bit already, but the fathers, or the, I should say the, the partners of these women who are expected to maintain a perfect home and a perfect child playroom and all this stuff and all these, these like bland colors, the, the, the male partner here is never expected to do any of that stuff. And if anything, the work is outsourced to another woman to maintain that aesthetic, right? So it's outsourced, as I said before, to a nanny or a maid or like a mother's helper. And in which case, all three of these people are going to be um, women or girls, <laughs> teenage girls to women. It's up to the babysitter, often a girl, like a teenage girl, to maintain that cleanliness and maintain that, maintain that aesthetic, right? Um, and so there are lots of questions raised, too, about who which people does this put more pressure on? And it's always the usual suspects, right? Like it puts more pressure on moms who are already, and, and other women who are already dealing with immense pressures socially, but especially as a parent. And so I think, you know, just like my, what I would say, and I'm no expert, so take this with a grain of salt, but, uh, you know, I think that like, you got to do what works best. And when I mean, when I say what works best, like do what what's within your means that you can afford. Don't stress yourself out. If you're play, if, first of all, if you don't have a playroom, like it's okay. <laughs> Cause I often see these, these questions pop up on blogs and stuff where it's like, can I do Montessori if I just live in an apartment or like whatever, can I do Montessori in a small space? It's like ridiculous, ridiculously sad to me that, that people are being told or getting like perceiving that they can't, embrace a philosophy to raise their child or to teach their child simply because they don't live in a mansion you're like what the heck this is just wild to me that that's been that's been the standard at late as of late you know like you it's as if saying it's as if they're saying like you can't really adequately parent unless you're rich and that's deeply unfair and wrong to be quite frank um so like I see a lot of stuff like that and I think that there's these sorts of movements um you know, in, in parenting and especially social media representations of parenting are really toxic and dangerous, um, especially for poor women. And so, like I said, I say, you know, do what works best for you. Do what you can do within your means. You, first of all, manage like <laughs> the basics, you know, like is your child fed? Is your child healthy? Is your child, um, you know, happy in the, the, the basic three things, you know, and then um, worry about the other stuff as it comes or not worry about it at all, right? Like, there's so many things that you can do that don't involve buying anything, that don't involve, um, you know, having to have the perfect color this or the perfect color that. Like, get get a book. Get things that your kid likes that are that's small. It doesn't have to be expensive, you know? Um, and the main thing that your kid is learning from is not just these objects, but from time spent with you, right? So if you're working with your child, if you're sitting and talking to your child, if you're engaging your child, um, if you're having, you're doing things together, right? Like that's more important than anything else that these like 
fancy rich moms are like pushing you to do or buy or whatever. Like none of that really matters at the end of the day. And ultimately I think that if we have a moment where we can just take a deep breath, don't worry about what's on social media. It's not real anyway. At least it's not fully representative of the actual experiences of these parents and families and just breathe. And then say to my, say to yourself, but myself too, because I always find myself doing this is like, is my child happy? Is my child having a good time? Is my child learning in some way from what we're doing? And like, that's not to say that every single thing we're doing has to be some sort of learning lesson, you know, your experience. It doesn't. But there's always going to be, you know, a little something that they learn, especially if they're younger, right? So what are they getting out of this moment that we're spending together? And that to me is way more important um, and a lot cheaper (laughs) than any of the fancy stuff that the parents are expected and especially mothers are expected to maintain in a household that I just think is unrealistic um, and unfair. And uh, don't worry about if they're playing with plastic toys or don't worry about if they're, you know, watching a little TV, like it's not going to kill them. Um, And so I think that it's, it's just, we have to get out of these, these boxes that we keep constantly being forced into for the sake of consumer capitalism, because that's ultimately what it's about, right? Like, even though it seems to be more minimal, it seems to be more nature-based or whatever, it's still pushing us into an area where we are not in control of what we're doing as parents. And instead we're like adhering to these systems that tell us to just, you have to buy the right thing. You have to use the right color. You have to buy the right brand of clothes and this sort of aesthetic and this sort of, um, you know, like these sorts of protocols that they have to follow when they make the clothes or otherwise, you know, like, come on, you might be better off just buying, uh, clothes from Goodwill that have been worn before by another kid or like borrowing clothes from a family member who just had a kid or whatever, instead of just going out and buying brand new stuff just because it's organic or whatever. So, and I also want to say, I should say like full disclosure, I'm also not judging moms who do want to adhere to this thing, right? If you can afford to do it and you feel like it works best for you, do your thing. Like I'm not, I'm not saying what you're doing is bad, but what I am saying is bad is that society is telling us that there's only one way to parent and there's only one way. There's a very rigid box that we have to fit into if we want it to be quote unquote good moms, right? Um, and it's all surface and it's not about like very little of this ends up being about how your child feels. And instead it ends up being about what the society that you live in says about what you're doing and how other moms may judge you for what you're doing and whether or not you meet those standards. So with that said, try to let that go. If you are a parent, um, and if you're listening to this and really just focus on, like I said, what's making your child happy, what's making you feel balanced as a parent and what's making your relationship stronger together, um, as you, you know, as you go through your day to day. So, um, I think for the next few months, I'm going to keep doing like at least a once, try to do, I should say, try to do a once a week episode um, about a variety of different things, whether it's a Comrade Mommy episode, a Reading Revolution episode, you know, a Left POC of the Week episode, whatever it is. I do want to put something out once a week. Um, And I plan on, uh, you know, I'm going to get some interviews lined up and things like that for all different segments of the podcast or like as a sub-series of the podcast. And I also would like to do more on pop culture this year, um, particularly because I've just noticed so much stuff in pop culture lately that has a really, <laughs> really interesting and important line or 
several on class issues, um, racial issues, et cetera, that I think could be really, really uh, good meat for us to chow into uh, in this in the for this podcast. Like I, I really think we could get a lot out of discussing these things. So um, yeah, look forward to that uh, because I, I would like to start talking about some shows and movies and whatnot. And I think also just because like during the pandemic, I start, I've always been into pop culture, but during the pandemic, uh, when that started up and as it continues, I've noticed myself watching and consuming a lot of this pop culture stuff in a more, I don't know, in like a heavier way. Right. It's, and I think too, just as a parent, like it's kind of always on in the background or in my headphones or something like that. Um, and also as a way to kind of escape, I guess, so just being completely honest with myself, like, instead of reading all the, the really difficult like science um, articles or like watching the news or whatever and just uh, dealing with that, sometimes you have to take a break. And I do that through really bad reality TV and stuff. So, but anyway, that being said, I think that there is some room there to discuss some of the class elements uh, of these shows and um, sort of the social and political issues that they bring up that perhaps even scripted shows are not as willing to brooch um and certainly do a poorer job of so yeah we'll be we'll be talking about some pop culture stuff too this year and i'm gonna just embrace that side of myself and stop seeing it as a separate um <laughs> like separate thing from my politics and recognize it as like a lens or a, a thing through which i'm i'm viewing these pop culture um elements so i'm gonna i'm gonna embrace that too anyway Thank you all so much for listening. And if you can, please like and share and subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your mama, tell your friend, etc. Tell your colleague about Left POC. Um, and also, if you are so inclined, feel free to donate a dollar or more per month uh, by going to our Patreon page. And that's patreon.com slash left POC. I've got to put some things there that, um, to reflect sort of updates on the the episodes and whatnot. Um, but generally I put content there that is useful and I will certainly be uploading the article that I discussed briefly in this episode and some other stuff. Uh, so yeah, feel free to join. And also I should just say that everything on the Patreon feed is always free. I don't charge because I don't believe that any of this information should be behind a paywall, but I may start doing some special stuff, Q and A's or whatever that are kind of like off the record type things that I do charge for on Patreon, but I don't foresee having many of those. And I feel like we'll eventually release them to the public for free anyway. But if you want to be the one to get it early, uh, that may be something you can do. And also if you just like what we're doing around here, if you like this project, if you're happy that it exists, and if you want to support people like me who are doing things that are a little bit different, um, but doing it to like, I don't know, get the word out on, on left politics, please feel free to support us for that reason too. And if you can't support, if you don't have a dollar per or dollar or more per month, which is the hardest phrase to say on the earth for me. Um, but if you want to support us in other ways, feel free to do that too. Like I said, share the podcast, tell a friend, share the social media stuff that you see and find interesting from left POC. Um, and definitely check us out everywhere by simply searching for left POC. So with that said, thank you all so much for listening. Take care of yourselves, be safe. And also just as a reminder, if you have to go indoors or if you're going to be in close contact with another human being outdoors, please, 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 I beg of you, 
wear a mask and wear a good mask. Wear an N95, a KN95, or a KF94 that fits you well and don't take it off uh, while you're indoors because you're breathing in dirty, dirty COVID air. So we don't want you to get sick and we don't want other folks to get sick um, through you. So do your best to lower the spread to fight all of that back by wearing a mask. It's really simple. And if you are so inclined, which I also encourage, get vaccinated, but do more than one thing, right? You got to it's like all hands on deck here. Do everything you can to reduce the spread, to reduce infection, and, re- you know, reduce getting this as well. Prevent, prevent, prevent. Okay, folks, have a good one. Be safe. Peace out. Bye.